0: Listening to Rock and Or Roll, part of the Pantheon Network. And on today's episode, you will hear Dave Swanson tell the story of his band The Pop, which he originally formed in Los Angeles in the early 70s with his partner Roger Prescott. The Pop were around when Van Halen first started, and they sort of and they sort of rode that wave from glam, hard rock, to new wave power pop. First we will hear Dave talk about writing one of my favorite power pop songs, the song we're hearing now called Shake Away from the 1979 album by the pop called Go, and then Dave will tell the story of the pop from his beginnings in Chicago to the end of the band in the early 80s. <laughs> One of my favorites is Shake Away. Can you talk about putting that song together? I really love that song.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, it was a very uh, quick song. It was one of those things where I was sitting around. uh, This was, we had just gotten signed, I think, to Arista. Uh, It was right at the beginning of, end of 78 Mm -hmm. into 79. Probably right after the holidays, we were casting about for... Um, producers at that point, and I was spending a lot of time, of course, trying to write. In my mind, it had a, a kind of an apocalyptic meaning or a implication, if you will, of an end times, some sort of Freudian death consciousness or something, you know, where where it doesn't come across that way. But, but I was thinking you wake up with this kind of sense of excited, anxious foreboding about the greater condition of humanity uh, you know woke up this morning with a rattle in my brain gotta get gone lest i remain uh you're just kind of going up some space there but you, so i you're trying to outrun that feeling and not remain in this foreboding thing but having a conscious sense of imminent peril if you will <laughs> or uh, you know um devolution of, con- of the condition of the world, right? And, and if the thought catches up to you and just trying to shake it off, basically, you know, shake off that, that has become, I don't know, I think for many young people today, I mean, I'm talking, you know, the, the people who are in their 20s, 30, early 30s, 20s to 30. I think there's a, I think they're much more despondent than we were at that age back then Mm -hmm.
2: Uh,
1: I think the world is a darker place for them Uh, I think there's less hope for them now than there may have been for us I'm not sure about that it's all relative I suppose but as I look over the course of you know my seven decades now of my life you know and a lot of it is just nostalgia I suppose but I do feel that that the music was better when I was a kid you know than it is now. Um, and that's debatable, I know, but but that that things just in general were simpler, easier, more direct, more um, somehow in- integrated, and, and hence more supportive in some sort of cultural way. Uh, in that sense of cultural integration, I think we're much more isolated now and so forth. But even even at that stage, when I, you know. Behind Arista, that 1978-79 space there, I would have these senses of, you know, uh, impending doom or something. You know, especially to smoking a lot of grass or something like that. You know, <laughs> drinking too much and smoking dope. I mean, yeah, you get a little depressive, you know, You're a little maudlin. So it was like that, and it was the whole idea was just to, to shake it off. You know, get up, get act you know, get get into gear. Run around, have some fun, you know, stick my head out, take a look around, get all the sights and see all the sounds, you know, let's shake, shake away, that kind of thing. So that's that's what it meant to me. And it just came out very quickly. Yeah, I used to play in Madison when I was still living in Chicago. So I went to LA, they had a power trio at the time called Shaky J.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was I a bass player, and we did covers of the Who and hum, a lot of Humble Pie, and I don't know some Johnny Winter and that sort of thing. You know? Yeah. So what? Where? You, where would you like to start? I mean, that's kind of a starting, a jumping-off point for me in terms of my personal history in la uh yeah i went there in the beginning uh, early may not the beginning but may of uh 72 left uh, shaky jake there and um went out to to la with a plan of sort of writing these retro pop-ish think now think 72 i was
2: thinking you know i actually
1: had this thing you know, this concept in my head, you know, slightly retro, like some kind of like, uh, Johnny Angel on the flying tigers, 56 Cadillac strange sort of hybrid glitter smash, you know, the glitter, the glitter smashers had occurred. Okay. From England, Slade, uh, T-Rex, uh, some, some of those guys, you know, were, and, and Stuart too, of course, with the, with faces. And now, Uh, yeah, with the Every Picture Tells a Story tours that came through Chicago just the year before. So there was kind of this glitterish thing going on that I wanted to kind of carry in with a kind of a retro cast thing to it. Uh, Moving forward with um, these kind of, you know, I guess the the term hadn't really occurred yet, but a power pop-ish edge or, or direction of the songs. Uh, I'd always written songs since, since I was about 15, 16, and so I i was already, I already considered myself to be a songwriter, and so I was kind of trying to cobble together, a, I did cobble together a, oh, a, I don't know, dozen and a half of these type songs, some of which were, I mean, it not, ex- you know, it wasn't that well honed so that it wasn't like a Cookie cutter kind of stamp to the songs, but there was that kind of influence in in a few of them, and just general pop uh, rock sort of sensibility to the rest or rock, you know.
0: And so uh, I went up there
1: with this sort of concept in mind. Those back in the days when concepts were starting to evolve, right? Yeah, uh, we need to look no further. We need to look no further than Bowie's advent in that same year you know, he came with such force that it was somewhat stunning myself having just gotten there sort of with this other idea, you know, I mean, it didn't really throw me off course, but, uh, it, you know, there was a natural sort of, uh, reaction. I think that, Oh, I don't want to do that. Kind of thing. And yet you couldn't help but sort of be influenced by it mm-hmm. at the same time. So, uh, anyway, so I kind of knocked around for the first few months and, uh, you know, there was this place out in, El- in Hollywood called the Musicians' Contact Service, which you may know about, but uh, they had like these, you know, big three ring binders full of like drummers, guitar players, singers, bass players, <laughs> keyboard players, you know, and so you'd pay your 25 bucks or whatever, and you'd get to go in there and hunt through these, these volumes of of, of-, of, per- of people, uh, musicians, and uh, based on their synopses of themselves um and their directions and so forth you you know take some numbers and call them you know one thing led to another i met a couple of managers and so forth so i knocked around for a few months trying to get a piece of band together and not much was really happening and uh, one of the people i would called was roger prescott and <laughs> first phone conversation was was not if not hostile just a, just a little just a little standoffish little uh um, sort of acrimonious, you know, this undercurrent. Well, oh, I don't want to do that. I've already done that. No, I'm not doing that. You know, in terms of musical sensibilities and, and things. And uh, we both had the same idea. He he wanted to, you know, put a band together and so did I. And so we didn't click that first conversation and never got together. But long about October of that year, nothing still has had been going, I guess, for either of us, he called me and said, well, we talked before. Do you remember? I said, yeah, yeah. How can I forget?
2: <laughs> and, uh,
1: and he said, what do you, you know, anything going on with you? And I said, no, not really. And then, uh, um, he said, well, you know, why don't we sit down and just, you know, take another revisit this thing, you know, and just see if there's any, anything, uh, that we have in common. And, and, uh, so we did that. And, um, and we decided well yeah we did have i mean he was a little more blues rock oriented he was he'd come from actually originally from virginia and up via boston where he had met uh some uh people he actually auditioned i think for aerosmith at one point or think uh, yes, he did and um he knew, knew those guys in their formative stage for their embryonic stage anyway and we also met, uh, David Robinson who, and, and the modern lovers up in Boston. Um, Jonathan Richmond, you know, mm-hmm. so we, Roger and I started to get together in earnest that, that fall of 72 and worked and then pretty much worked around 73. We played a couple of acoustic, sort of, you know, showcase type things. <clears throat> we, were, we were actually calling ourselves Noggin and twin. Um. Oh for a brief moment, and um, and we did these sort of really weird sort of, I don't know, kind of glitterish, uh, glitter smasherish pop acoustic things, you know, with strange songs, uh, melodic things, you know, and we would sing in harmony some of the time, and I would sing the rest of the time, you know, and uh, it was kind of interesting and fun, and the days of platform shoes and strange Attire of some, some form or other, some of it, you know, a lot of mine was, I was kind of homemade. I had a girlfriend who was sewing stuff for me and she was actually from the Art Institute in Chicago too. And she had come out to join me in the beginning of 73 and was, you know, she was helpful in that regard of wardrobe. She was very into fashion. She had been a silk screen artist at the Art Institute um, in Chicago. That's what she's been studying. So there was some silk screeny stuff. and you know, it's just in in terms of fabrics and clothing and stuff. So it was a lot about the look and the kind of trying to consolidate a kind of a an imagey thing that uh, you know, there was kind of this airy fairyness about the whole thing, especially with the influence of Bowie and the spiders from Mars. So uh, it was kind of a. A, a mixture, maxture. And then uh, eventually we decided no, no, we really want to get a, you know, we, and, and we knew this, we wanted to get a drummer and be a rock band. We didn't want to play acoustic guitars, but, uh, we were just doing that, uh, tempor- temporarily to kind of, you know, they will, you know, get used to each other's playing and home, kind of homing in on what it was we wanted to do. So we had tried a couple of different drummers that wasn't working. And finally, I think at the end of 73, um, the Modern Lovers had come to L.A. to finish their album, which they began with John Cale in, in the East. But then he flamed out and Warner Brothers had put them together with Kim Fowley to finish their record. Um, so they were in L.A. and on the verge of not only finishing the record, but uh, I, I guess they finished the record with Kim Fowley, delivered it to Warner Brothers and then promptly broke up. Uh, but we had seen them at the, uh, I don't know, at the Whiskey or someplace. And and I'd met Robinson. And then we talked uh, and said, what are you going to do now? And I said, we really need a drummer. Why don't you come back? And cause he was going to go back for the holidays. And, and then he didn't know what he was going to do to Boston. And, uh, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll come back. So after the holidays, he did come back. And, we, and that's when we in the spring of 74 then came up with the name pop it was just pop in the beginning and we did a logo and Susie the silkscreen girlfriend did t-shirts for you know we did a bunch of t-shirts and stuff it was we had kind of this uh, spiraling you know circus type lettering that said pop with an exclamation point and that was our thing right we made some we made signage and so forth that um, went along with that and and so it was kind of this Power pop stuff, the the term for which had not been coined yet. Going into seventy four we eventually uh found the fellow by the name of Steve T, Steve Tetch actually. Uh not Stephen Tetch, the jazz guy, fusion guy, but Steve Tetch T E uh T S C H. I think it might have been the same spelling, I'm not sure, but he just went by Steve T. And uh and he was a four, and a second guitar player. I was playing bass. And, you know, Roger and I were writing songs, all these songs. And we were going for a vocal sound as much as, as an instrumental sound. Uh, <clears throat> so we did have three-part harmony. And it was, you know, but it was, you know, it was rock, you know. And it was like sort of we were pushing into that mold. of The reason for the name Pop was we were alluding to um the pop art movement um that you know from the mid to late 60s that had just preceded uh, the, you know us in the art world you know and but it, you know alluding to the pop artness of the who um the kinks the, and now the sweet just a general pop artness of of the culture of the rock and roll culture right mm-hmm. so but it was a hard sell because people thought, well, pop, Are you talking about the Carpenters or, or, you know, um, like David Cassidy, who the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? You know, what, 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 what does this mean? What does this name mean? So, uh, you know, who, where are you guys in this thing? And so we always had to kind of, it was an uphill battle sort of to get people to understand where we were coming from. When they saw the band, it was different. They could see it, you know, but, you know before that you know a song is worth a thousand words right We started to get a toehold. We were just playing all anything we could get, any kind of gigs we could get. We had an we had a, uh, a uh, an agent at the time. We were looking for management, and uh, you know David Robinson knew a bunch of people because he, he knew people from Warner's, and they knew some managers. And so we were talking to different people and different producers, uh, doing some demos here and there, um, playing any gigs we could get. And we we found Roger found this agent. Um, Mick gamble <laughs> for appropriate agent name right
2: yeah.
1: um and uh, and uh, he booked uh, of all things uh, fraternity parties at sc and U- ucla usc and ucla uh among other you know high school sock hops and other weird things that all of which we played uh, and so seasonally you know like in the spring and in in the winter, we'd have this barrage of these fraternity, sorority gigs at these universities. And, you know, they were like four-hour, you know, drunk, uh, drink-a-thons, you know, beerathons. a uh, But they had this wonderful, um, at SC, they had this wonderful mixture, it was called the Green Death. And they would mix it in a plastic garbage can, um, probably new. Uh, I mean, they never seemed to have much shortage of money in those places. but. Uh, So they would pour in uh, uh, um, ginger ale, um, cheap champagne, and vodka, and dry ice, and lime sherbet to make it green, right? So (laughs) it was was like this deadly concaction that, you know, you drink by the tumbler full throughout the course of the evening. So there there was a lot of drinking that went on in those days. Uh, But, you know, we play these gigs. And sure enough, you get better, you know, and uh, people start to recognize the name. Then um, after, uh, then eventually while David Robinson was still with us through somebody's recommendation, uh, he had reached out to a fellow by the name of uh, Alan Rindy, uh, And uh, I think it was David who kind of, made that contact got connection I'm not sure. He was mm-hmm. living in West Hollywood at the time in an apartment and uh he became our manager slash he, he, no actually at the time well he did become our manager but at the time he was in partnership as a production company with a fellow by, by the name of George Tobin. George Tobin had <clears throat> a um, recording studio on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City called um Video sound recorders, I believe. And it was a bona fide studio. He had, you know, in uh, on uh, right on the main drag there, a little east of Laurel Canyon on Ventura Boulevard. By that time, we, where were we? We had been back and forth. We started out living, Roger and I, up on Mulholland Drive, just at the very east end of it. Um, That didn't last because the house was for sale. We had to move. Then David Robinson joined us. We moved into a place on Sunshine Terrace. Uh, actually, he moved back while we were still on Mulholland, but we had to leave there quickly and found a house on, on Sunshine Terrace in Studio City that we all lived in for a while and were recorded there. And that's where a lot of this activity uh, emanated from, the Sunshine Terrace place. But eventually we ended up in what we call the Pop Mansion at Riverson, River, uh, was it Riverton Riverton and Ventura Um several apartments by this time, Steve T had one of them. Roger had one of them and Susan and I had one of them. Um, and, and we stayed there for quite a while. So that was sort of studio city was sort of our central area there for several years. And at the time that, um, we, uh, met Alan and then George, uh, Robinson was still with the band and we started recording with them Stephen T was in the band too. Um, we started recording there and uh but uh, uh far internet um preserved the records Rob, approached robinson and we've we've sub licensed the modern lovers record from warners and we want to put it out we want to get the band together back together and so they persuaded him to do that I came and they liked he liked the limousine that they came and picked him up in the discussions, I like guess. But anyway, so he went off and did that, and now we're without a drummer. And 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 oh yeah, and just before that, I think we were playing some kind of big, uh, I don't know, high school dance or something. And Steve T and Roger had gotten into a fight. Steve T was a, <laughs> he was really a, a child of privilege, you know. He was. An only child, lived in Pacific Palisades, um, you know, was just, you know, had z- zero sense of responsibility to much <laughs> of anyone or anything, although he did like stand, so he, you know, mostly showed up. I um, sometimes took some cajoling and wheedling on our part. But so Roger and he had gotten an, an argument on stage about something, and Roger slapped him in the face and bloodied his nose. Mm -hmm. He
2: had
1: had quit just shortly before Robinson um, was uh, swept away by the the black limousines of uh, Brasically Records. But now it's just me and Roger again and Alan and George. Well, the George business wasn't going very well. Um, He had, you know, very commercial sensibilities and was only used to working with single singers uh, um, you know, I mean, uh, solo artist singers. And he'd worked, I don't know, I don't know, I can't even remember now. I think he had something to do with Gene Pitney at one point uh, years before. Had a couple of hits, of Some a song called Cinnamon, Let Me In. I mean, that kind of stuff, bubble gummish. And so that wasn't going well, especially in, in Roger's opinion. You know, I was perhaps more flexible on that, but Roger was didn't get along with George at all. So eventually Alan bought us out from George and took us over, even though they were still in association in the studio as his sort of sole project. And we had a production deal with them. So he, he bought that out and and he became the the curator of that uh, or the, the overseer of that, uh, that, that deal. At that point, we just were working with him, so we continued recording. We got involved with a couple of different musicians at the time. A fellow I'd played with years before in Chicago, actually, in, when I was in college, uh, uh, Lee Rebaczek, who had moved to L.A., actually became known as Lee Kicks, a good drummer, very good drummer, um, but you know, not not really pop material in terms of member stuff. For some reason, I can't remember why. I think he just really wanted to make a living as a studio player, basically, or get with somebody who actually had a deal. Mm-hmm. But he helped us out for several tracks. And, a, and another guitar player by the name of Jamie Herndon, a Texan, a very good musician, uh, great guitar player, tremendous uh, slide guitar player, and, and some piano, some you know fairly decent piano. And he actually wrote a song called Down on the Boulevard, which we did a version of with george and allen but later re you know uh, rearranged and rewrote a verse for though we never got writer and credit for it unfortunately in the later incarnation because george george had swept up the publishing to that uh in the first place somehow from jamie and so we couldn't and it never worked out that he would honorably Say, oh, he, this is a sl- this is a different song. <laughs> you got, you know, uh, by title he just retained the title, and that we never got writing credit for what became the so-called, you know, sort of legacy hit of the pop, which was down on the boulevard. about this time we brought uh, from Chicago invited out from Chicago a guitar player from Shaky Jake Rick Bittner and he became our second guitar player uh, we found a drummer a fellow by the name Joel, Joel Martinez Joel not Joel but Joel Martinez uh, a blonde haired uh, Mexican from Mexico City his mother had been it, um, was was German or was. And his father was Mexican, and, and we called him. And he sat really low, and sort of like a low rider drummer. So that was kind of how we, you know, marketed him or, or advertised him. You know, that was his claim to fame. And um, and you know, Rick, Rick liked to refer him, refer to him as, yeah, I like Joel. when we were auditioning drummers. Yeah, I like Joel. He's a slasher, <laughs> so we ended up going with him. And, and unfortunately, Joel had a serious problem later on, and um, etc. I'll get into that. But meanwhile, you know, our, our music is evolving a little bit, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty hard rock stuff. Roger started to be influenced a uh, uh, slightly, uh, somewhat unduly, I thought, in my estimation, by uh, by the then burgeoning um, Aerosmith and you know I, I i was staying kind of more the um birds-ish ish side of things my ideal for sound and to this day and some of the late demos that i did independently of the pop later late late in my career were exactly what i envisioned Which is sort of a, a, a if there were an offspring if the birds if the early birds and and the, and the early who had made it and had some sort of hybrid offspring. That's that's kind of what I, you know, wanted and and went for in my music. Ultimately, the ultimate rock sound was in my brain as that. And so it always had been. That was always kind of where I want. I wanted I was pulling it that way. Roger was pulling a little more to the the harder rock stuff. and so it was a, it was a good blend. I mean, we were we were somewhat foils for each other in that, and came up with stuff that was somewhere in the middle, I suppose, uh, although leaning this way or that way, uh, depending on who wrote the song. Initially, we had done a fair amount of co-writing, but that diminished over time. Although being in direct association in a band, there's always that arrangemental influence of each other. And which is you know, pretty tantamount to co-writing, you know, if not exactly such. Yeah. Uh, so that's the way that it, that was playing it was playing out, but not yet. We were still sort of co-writing and certainly co-involved in driving the band forward. So we had now had Rick Bittner from Shaky Jake and Joel Martinez on drums, and Alan was our was a producer slash manager at that point. He was really in our corner. He was terrific. Um, I mean, really, I, I can say nothing. I mean, okay. He had corny ideas and you had to take him with a grain of salt, but it was, he always had ideas and he was always there to back us up and help us out when, the, you know, if a guitar got stolen or an amp blew up or something like that, he was, he was there. He got us into some meaningful, um, i don't know situations later on. the 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 primary one the the pivotal one being now was an event that we well I, let me back up just a hair here and this was the spur of the early spring of 76 by this time we had put out one record backdoor man a fanzine from backdoor man magazine a fanzine from the South Bay area, like long beach down, down around there somewhere. Redondo, a group of people had gotten behind us and were in our corner and they would write these articles about us in their fanzine, they'd come to our shows. And ultimately uh, there was Don Waller, Greg Turner, Dee Dee Fay, Tom Gardner. Uh, I don't know if I got them all, but, uh, those, they were, uh, the four main ones uh of the group and of uh, these you know these they were just fans they were wild The you know like they were rock and roll they loved and uh a band called the dogs who had come out from detroit lauren molinaire uh mary and ron ronnie wood ron wood was actually his name um, mary mary i can't remember her last name now. Oh, damn it uh, but Lauren was the leader of the band. They were a power trio out of Detroit. The motels had shown up at the same time, come down from San Francisco, the Bay Area, Martha Davis. And at this time, we had all met up, the three bands along with a few other incidental ones that I can't remember, remember any of. There was a call put out in the LA Times by the Park Service, the, by the uh, Municipal Park service guy, uh, director to have concerts in the parks around Los Angeles, a few places. Like, well, like I think there was one out in the Valley of Cedar or someplace, you know, not deep Valley, but along West Ventura Boulevard, um, out that direction, Van Nuys Griffith park, of course was a big place. And I can't remember if there was, oh, yeah, the one over in uh, down by a Hillcrest Country Club in Beverly Hills. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Beverly Hills Park, somewhere over there. And um, um so um, those are the three places that we played and at, at these summer concerts. So we met out at in North Hollywood at some civic building with this park director, you know, running this thing. And we all showed up. And that's how we met the dogs in the motels. And um, and sure enough, we did these gigs. They they would provide the PAs, and uh, it would be a Sunday afternoon event, you know. And so uh, there were several of these in in uh, the early part of '76, um, spring really, early spring because you know it's always summer there, pretty much. You know, if it's not raining. And over the course of I don't know just a couple of months, the idea came about, and I think uh, Alan uh, was. It was Primarily us, you know, myself and Roger and Alan said, you know, we need to do something because we can't get into these clubs on Sunset Boulevard. They had essentially locked down. There had been some musical going on, uh, El Grande Coca-Cola going on at the whiskey for years at that point. It just had moved in there. Nobody could get them out of there. And it was a musical of some kind. I never even saw it, but it was just there forever. And the Starwood was only booking, um, you know, kind of new signed acts. So they were like, you know, acts without much following yet. That the Hollywood record machine was, you know, spewing forward and spewing out on a continual basis. And there was, I don't know, there wasn't really any other club. I can't even remember. There were, there was, there were some others in existence, but again, they were either like kind of folk, uh, folk rock clubs or kind of that uh, West Coast sound, but, you know, signed folkish acts that and so there was no place to play. And the only place that was a rock club on the, on the strip was Gazari's dance club. And, and, um, Van Halen had, you know, was, was house band for that place. They were there all the time. So there was no place to play on the strip and we need to get, we needed to break into Hollywood and break it over. So we, we we invented this um, event called radio free Hollywood. And we rented troopers hall, which is on La Brea, just, uh, just off of Franklin uh, on La Brea uh, in Hollywood. It was an old, exactly that troopers for, you know, the, for actors, a club, big club hall, house hall. And we booked that, and we had um, the motels, the dogs. We headlined it as we were doing it, and um, and we were probably the um, we were the best band. There's no question about that. But and 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 a band called I think the Boys P O Y Z. Uh, I think there were four acts, and and it was really cool. I mean, yeah, Martha got her teeth into it, and. You know, had some uh, some skits for her. She had two daughters already at the time. We had the kids doing some skits, and I don't know. It was it was, it was and we publicized the hell out of it. Um, Alan got press for us. I don't remember. If, I don't think we sold tickets in advance, but it was like there was this pent up need for something like that, and so and and plus all the ba- all these bands had been playing these park gigs, so we had already followings and we had the back our man group behind us and and we had just put out 45 prior to that um very recently to this uh very very recently previous to this it was our first single it was uh, break the chain and uh hit and run lover right, lover right, right, hit right. and run lover was the first It uh, was actually the more of the the a side This gig, and it was tremendously well received. It was packed, I mean, really. I mean, there must have been 400 people in this hall of a, of, I mean, it's just like a multi purpose room sort of size hall, you know, so jam packed with people. They loved it. It was great fun. There writers there, a uh, fellow by name, like, Greg uh, Shaw. He also had a fanzine called Bop. Yep. And he was act- actually the one who coined the term, as far as I understand it, in my recollection, power pop, and in specific reference to our sound. Uh, You know, the review of the show, and that became a a useful kind of term. And of course, the rest is history in that regard, because it's broadly used now. Anyway, so it was a very successful thing. And what happened as a result of that was was that these clubs, Started to book unsigned local bands that had, you know, because they said, well, shoot, they, they had, you know, 400 people at this show. Maybe we can, you know, they're, they have following, so let's book them. So Starwood opened up. Uh, eventually, the Rainbow opened up to us, but that was a little later. The whiskey, and we played a number of shows there. Uh, stuff started opening up all over the place, clubs, all, all stripes, you know, uh, and that spread out from there. I mean, we had played a lot of beer bars over the years as, as a pop uh, with David Robinson and Steve T before any of those other later transformations occurred. But uh, we, we'd been playing a lot for a long time. But this really was the meat of it now, because we could do our shows, you know, do our original sets and you know, to a night and, you know, feel like we were accomplishing something. Plus we had had, we had a couple of singles out right on the heels of Radio Free Hollywood. We put out the Down on the Boulevard EP with Easy Action and I Need You by the Kinks. And, uh, the, and at that point, backdoor, that was also a Backdoor Man funded uh, you know, label thing. Uh, they, invented the, they invented the Backdoor Man record label. Uh, for, our, for our records, and they did some other ones too. Eventually, one of those guys spun off from that group, uh, had got some money, inherited some money, or something. Greg Turner, and he and Alan then funded the completion of our first independent record on the Automatic Record Label, which we invented. There's nothing wasn't approved of by Roger and I. Didn't matter what it was, <laughs> you
2: know, we
1: you know we had a certain grip on things, and which was part of part of the problem, I think. But nonetheless, that was the condition of our uh, existential condition. And that album came out at the end, and, then, and that took a couple more years. Uh, the end of seventy-seven, or the beginning of seventy-eight. I can't remember. when We finally got that album packaged up and out. What? Oh, and. Yeah, along the way, then, over the course of the next year and a half from Radio Free Hollywood to, and I don't really think it was that long before that record came out, I think it was the end of '77, so just slightly more than a year. We were, and I, Joel started to get into trouble. I mentioned he had a drug problem, he was junkie. Uh, I don't know where he is now, I don't know if he's alive or dead. The latter, I, Imagine. Um, but he would get arrested. And so um, we'd have to find a drummer because we had gigs, you know. <laughs> so, uh, one of the neighborhood drummers, uh, uh, maybe Hollywood being the neighborhood, um, we learned of was Tim McGovern. And by this time also, we had discovered that uh, oh, Rick Bittner had left the band, but we had discovered that our bass player, I mean, our roadie, Tim Henderson, was in fact quite an excellent bass player because we were back, we were reduced temporarily, had been reduced temporarily to a trio then, again, Roger, myself, and Joel, and that great picture of us at the whiskey in front of the slide screen of the image of Andy Warhol and some pop art stuff mixed in a collage um, was with Joel, Roger and myself, we were just a power trio for quite a while. Steve T was gone, Robinson had left, right? Uh, Rick had bailed. So we were back down a power trio. Um, but when Joel would get, and we're still, meanwhile, we're still doing, you know, these seasonal um, um, fraternity party brawls. And um, we would occasionally need a drummer. So we'd call McGovern and it was always great fun playing with him, he was a tremendous drummer um he played all the drums on the go album uh,
2: mm-hmm. all
1: all the all the songs drums and all the tracks on the go album and uh it was just great fun to play with as a drummer and and we had discovered that henderson was a, a we had we had been up in san francisco as the as trio and henderson said well i play bass you know and, been, and i i know the song from on lover david why don't you go out and just a front man or something. I do not know how the idea evolved, but anyway, he played bass on Hit Run Lover. And I just did front man lead singer thing for a couple of songs at the Buhay Gardens up in Frisco. I think it was the first time we did that. And so he kind of became the bass player and I went back to playing guitar. And then gradually as things evolved and McGovern would periodically appear on our records as, uh, as we finished up that first album, he played, I think, I don't know, three, four tracks. on. We dumped about four tracks out of the 10 or 11 songs we were going to put out on that first record. And we did some new ones with McGovern on drums because Joel was incapacitated or something. I don't know. And, and McGovern was a better drummer. He said, look, we, we want you to do this. And so he also added guitars on it. And so he became a member of the band along with Henderson at the same time. So we went from a three-piece, a five-piece virtually overnight as, with the advent and release of the pop album on the Automatic label. So now we're a five-piece. And we're, and McGovern was uh, interesting. Oh, and, oh was um, Joelle was still playing, appearing with us as drummer when we could keep him out of jail so but mcgovern was playing guitar he said look i want to play i want to play guitar i don't really want to be a drummer i'm a guitar player and he had this kind of psycho funkish style Hendrixy kind of playing but it was incredibly musical He's a very musical man i mean you know and and i was you know fascinated by his his musicianship right and so yeah he sang a little bit and so, you know, it was an interesting additional guitar thing and default drummer and, you know, but a pain in the ass, you know, but nonetheless, okay, you know, <laughs> we do what you have to do, you know, sort of firmly the ends justified the means at that point. We'd been doing this for a while and we wanted to, wanted to go somewhere with it finally, you know, so uh, as the five piece we appeared and we started getting the good, you know, we were getting good gigs and around the whole Southland at that point. Um, up, you know, been to San, San Francisco a couple of times, and Arizona, I don't know, someplace in Arizona. But uh, so we were getting around and uh, we finally got signed then uh, later in the fall of 78. The album had been out for nine months or something like that. Uh, and because uh, it came out right at the end of 77, I think, kind of a, like a holiday thing. In September of 78, we got signed from playing a club down in Orange County someplace. <clears throat> Bud Scappa from Arista records. We'd been, you know, we'd been trolling Arista for a while. Alan had cause he had worked with Clark Davis, uh, years earlier at Columbia. So, and we hadn't really gotten any place with them, but Bud Scappa fell in love with the band when he saw us and said, I'm, I'm going to get you guys signed to Arista, which he did promptly. And so it was like big excitement. And within like, I don't know, two weeks, we had this approval of a deal with Aristus in the late in the fall of seventy-eight. The evolution of the music had gone through numerous phases. Our best power pop stuff really was done with Robinson, um, and of course, uh, you know, there's songs like "Easy Action," which, unfortunately, the vocal on which was miserably undermixed. But uh, I've remastered that and try to evoke a little more of that in in a mastering context. But uh, you know, uh, easy action. I mean we like I said Boulevard, uh, you ought to know, uh walk in the rain. It was kind of the, I mean, the guy from the, the producer that did uh, Boomtown Rats loved Leather and Life. And we met with him as producer when we got signed with Ariston. We were shopping producers. He just was dying to produce the band. But he wanted that kind of stuff, which was not exactly Roger's wheelhouse. But I liked it. I wrote it, you know, and I thought it was, I loved, I really liked it. I thought it was a great track. that point there have been a fair amount of power pop stuff, none, uh, some of which never, never emerged. There's a great song that Roger wrote called He's a Little Wild um, that uh, ne- never appeared. Nobody's Toy, of course, was in that genre somewhat, although much more of that sort of monolith, uh, more of a hard-driving, um, dynamically monolithic track uh, that Roger liked. They were of an ilk, uh, Nobody's Toy and um, He's a Little Wild, which nobody ever heard, which is a great track. What we did with Robinson in the early days of that production deal with George Tobin and Alan Rindy before Robinson left. So th- that was really the power popish stuff, you know, uh, even hit and run lover, you know, I think. Um, could fall into that category and. But, as we moved in then to the deal with ARista, which took a while uh, to actually manifest, we didn't get started on that until the spring of '79. <clears throat> That's how long it took us to get off to get them off their asses, and for us to select a producer, because all the producers we were interested in had other projects that they had lined up before they could get to us, and in distinction to the knack who had that one great song and were knocking it down at the Troubadour. Oh, the Troubadour, that's another club that opened up because they were just doing, you know, country folk stuff, Dr. John the Night Trip, but they started playing and doing rock stuff there, and the knack really was knocking them down there at the Troubadour with that song, and they got signed uh, to Capitol after, well after we were signed, motels well after we were signed, 2020 well after we were signed in that year 79 by the time we got our shit together um these uh, other bands were right there at, at our shoulders you know uh in terms of who was at, you know advancing the power pop cause in la at that time uh and they enacted their record in i don't know a month or something like that it was nuts they just went there and just like the way the beatles you recorded their first record, right? Just in and out, get it out in a, in a month. You know, kind of just down, just very uh, succinctly. We were, you know, caught up in the elaboration of our three guitars, and we finally chose Earl Minkie, uh, who Roger and I had been in association with or knew mm-hmm. of since since um, the Modern Lovers. In fact, I met David Robinson not at modern lovers gig, but, uh, he had called us from the whiskey, uh, at some point when sparks were playing there right after modern lovers finished their record before he went back to Boston only to return after the holidays. Um, that's when we met Er Earl Mankey was in 73 Mm -hmm. and Roger and I had talked to him uh, End of the year 73 or the uh, 74. He had just left Sparks, he had a divorce. Uh, we stayed in touch with him and we liked him. He was tremendously helpful and technically very you know, advisory. He had lots of good ideas and technical stuff for our recordings, et cetera, et cetera. And because uh, he, w- he was an engineer, he was also at the time had been working with the speech voice as an engineer. So we liked Earl. So we work with him because he was available. Finally, we had to choose and we thought, well, we we have a dialogue, it's not gonna be somebody coming in with an imprimatur to say this is where we're gonna make your record and we have to you know suck it up and go along with it. You know, we thought there was more of a peer uh, level thing there. So we went with her all but we were, we were you know delayed by our elaboration with our three guitars and working things out at Earl's home studio before we went back into Sound City and to lay down the final tracks, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. on month of Sundays we ended up coming out at the same time after <clears throat> very very shortly after like the motels had uh, came out just before us the knack had been out for a couple of months um, 2020 came out concurrently with, concurrent with us um, you know so uh, we were suddenly in, in almost lost in the shuffle you know uh, in the dust you know of what was occurring. In LA at that time, so and and plus we had endured, as you well know, from the point of immediately after radio radio free Hollywood in '76, right. which was early '76. Shortly thereafter, within a couple of months or a month or so, came the advent of guess who, the Sex Pistols,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: sent everyone to their closets and their four tracks to, to slightly reinvent themselves in order to uh, not be left in the dust from that uh, catastrophe, you know, Um, catastrophic occurrence in the industry, really. I mean, you know, the punk thing. So we had already kind of had to, and I say had to, but by the natural flow of things, evolved and, and pushed ourselves a little bit into this category of, quote, new wave to the power pop thing, although there were still great power pop songs on the album. Namely, she really means that much to me, even waiting for the night. songs together on that side of the record, uh, Waiting for the Night, Indigo, I mean, remain one of my favorite combinations of songs on any album. I love listening to those two together. So there was still that aspect of our music, but we were kind of, uh, you know, working very hard to synthesize three guitars into a, an orchestral way of working, uh, carving out specific areas of uh, sonic uh, frequency within the mix of a, of a track, uh, of a song, uh, um, to, to, to uh, gain clarity and meaning uh, and intricacy interest of the three guitars working together so it became a much more elaborate process and a very much slower process by virtue of working with a very meticulous person in earl mankey i mean he's a very very meticulous guy um so and there were good things and bad things you know that that went into that and ultimately i think not only we suffer in uh, the sense of uh, pacing of the release of the record amidst uh, those who followed us, followed us, and being signed. Uh, we were the first band to be signed out of that L.A. milieu at the time and ended up just being amongst them in the final analysis. Uh, but also, um, the record, I think, was overthought in the final analysis and uh we lost the rawness that we had had on the best parts of the previous independent record the the pop album so i don't ever think uh even although it was a quote, real record with a real label. It was really as potent as the previous record was. As, and th- this is, and, and Brian, this is after years of reflection on this, occasionally revisiting those records and listening to them. It was, it was a hard admission for me to come to that I think that kind of was the case. Somehow, into, uh, overthinking it tamped it down a bit. And then certainly, I mean, we can't even, I don't even talk to me about the Rhino record. That was, well, that was at the end of things, you know, Um, uh, the great one of my, one of, and this is really, really breaks my heart. The best pop songs that that pop was ever responsible for, to my mind, was um, Broken Pieces. And we were rushed in the studio to finish that to do to do, an al- to do an album for Rhino because we'd lost the Arista deal. McGovern was gone. We had reformed uh, with a new drummer, of course, Bob Robert Williams, who we uh, after the Arista record was done because Joel was by that time in prison, um, not just jail but in prison. Uh, hence, McGovern doing all the drumming. And that happened immediately after we signed with Arista. Practically, uh, Joel lit fire to his apartment with his girlfriend sleeping there and you know was arrested for arson and endangerment uh whatever you call it um criminal endangerment um so he was in pr- jail at that point prison and so uh so but eventually when mcgovern left which is another long s- story where i'm not going to well in, involving martha and the motels and, and mcgovern just being sort of a rat bastard and a psychoanalysis do and i i i speak of him in the most in the kindest terms, but i mean i really do, did like him i do like i admire his music his musicianship um i, I you know to this day kind of like him although he's a scoundrel you know but um or was to us at that time i i i I've heard he since you know cleaned up his act, but you know who knows. I, I hear about him through Bobby, through Robert Williams, the, the pops, um, drummer, uh, one of the, one of the late stage pop drummers and who I have a very good relationship and admire and who's coming. I admire quite a bit anyway. So he's still friends with McGovern as is, uh, Terry Henderson, Tim Henderson's wife. She's in touch with him a lot. So he's, he's working about somewhere up in Seattle, but, um, so it was a long and checkered story um but uh in the end when we were doing the Hearts and Knives album for Rhino we had lost our Arrest deal because of all these machinations and failings of heiress's part and our part and the firing of Allen which I will never <laughs> n- never be at peace with now and especially uh, uh regret now that he's passed on. Um, and I was dead against it, but was outvoted. And of course, now we're on our own. We're un, we are un—we are unchaperoned. <laughs> we are um, in a dead deal with Arista, soon to have to pry ourselves free from it. That by the end of uh, 79 was, uh, I'm sorry, in, yeah, pretty much right around the end of the year, right after McGovern left, beginning of 80, Was evident. We had to get out of that deal because they were uh, were holding us hostage, and we started to submit demos to them. Well, we didn't actually know that we had to get out of it yet. By May, when we were going to Europe for a little stint, um, Jerry Heller agency, Jerry Heller was trying to get us out of the deal with Arista because they would not or move us forward in our deal. Trying to get client to move forward with. Letting, if in fact they were demanding this, which the second was uh, a album, a second album, it was a recall in the deal that they could require a second album for no additional advance other than our union payments, <clears throat> union wages. Uh, if they decided to, that was of course, most of these did, but that we couldn't get the move ahead on. Um, had him come and listen to us a couple of times. And I said, well, we don't really hear a song yet. There was some good stuff there. Uh, well, well we we're not hearing it, blah, blah, blah. So we came back to the States, and now we thought, that's it. We've just got to get out of this deal, which Buziak then pried us out of thinking that he could get us re-signed. Well, by the end of the year, we still were not re-signed. Desperate to get another record out before we lost all any and all momentum that we might still have been retaining. um, We uh, approached Rhino, uh, Harold Bronson, a close friend of Alan's uh, with Alan's help, I think, to let, let us do a record for them, which they paid, get this, 3,600 damn dollars. (laughs) 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 Of course, all we could do is a short, thing I'm um, sort of this mini LP I uh, have six songs and it was rushed and uh, um, tragically underproduced uh, sounding empty and thin in the giant cavernous reality that is sound city studio <laughs> or was. and uh, you know with the engineer who had worked with Earl Mankey on the go and us <laughs> and and, and, uh, and me being in of uh, fairly exhausted state of psychic metaphysical distress, I guess you could say, at that stage. Um, and and yet two more drummers down the line from Rob, from Bobby, Robert Williams, the guy who we had hired at the uh, release of the Go album. So um, now the drummer on that record being David Hoscott. So, um, you know, it was just a hopelessly poorly produced record that was a story so but my favorite all-time pop song and, I, and maybe it's because it was so tragic we under realized on that record was uh broken pieces i and it's so simple it just needed a guitar break and i and it's just a you play the guitar solo after the second chorus back into a pre-chorus guitar solo back into the chorus a couple of choruses and out you know and it would it, have it made all the it makes all the difference to that song. I mean it suddenly it's like this incredibly beautiful, full thing that is you know, is it didn't have it just needed that one little extra thought that we couldn't give it for some reason. Didn't give it, you know, under duress of stress of time and lack of money, you know.
2: The night shows no sign.
1: And that came out in March or something like April or March of uh, 81. And by June, May or June, I had sort of, you know, said, like, I got to leave. I can't do this anymore. So um, our last gig was July 4th, I think, 81 uh, at a theater on Wilshire somewhere. It was, a, it was a real, let me just say this about all this, that it was a real gift to have been a part of that. Regardless of how the chips fell out, you know, and what we didn't achieve that we wanted to achieve, might have achieved, should have achieved, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was a gift to have been part of that and to have worked with some of the, known those people, those guys, worked with a lot of them, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a great blessing in my life.
0: Looking to expand or move your company?
1: Ohio has the talent you need to scale for growth. Ohio's central location, reliable infrastructure, and top-ranked business climate are here to help you succeed. Get to business. Visit successinohio.com today.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football